Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mets fans, welcome to episode 221 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you so much for joining us this week. We have a bit of a smaller show, but not a shorter show, just two segments this week. And we're going to switch things up a little bit with the order of the show. So first up, we have our pal Steve Saipa answering an email about one of the Mets' top prospects. Hey Mets fans, it's Steve Saipa here, and I am here to answer an email. So, Ryan Mulner asks, Where do you guys stand on Thomas Zabucki? I know he was very impressive last year, albeit in limited action. Is he the clear-cut number one pitching prospect in the system now, or is it too early to tell? So, Ryan, who is the Mets' best pitching prospect? 
It is not Thomas the Pucky, in my personal opinion. That honor goes to none other than Rob Gazelman, who is ranked second best prospect in 2017 by Mason Avenue, and the Mets' top ranked pitching prospect. Uh, as we saw in his uh, cup of coffee last year in the major leagues, uh, his fastball sits, you know, low to mid 90s. It has touched once as high as 98, but really the pitch max is at about 96 miles per hour. And it gets um, a lot of sync, so he has a very good uh, ground ball rate. Uh, his curveball, it's an above average plus pitch. His slider, which he really just started throwing this year, is already an above average, you know, plus pitch. So that's two, uh, you know, above average to plus pitches that he throws. And then a changeup, which lags well behind the other two. But given that he has, you know, a decent selection with his curveball and slider, he doesn't need to go to the changeup as often as, you know, he might. So it's not that big of a knock against him. Um, really, Gazelman should be, you know, realistically, he should be in the top third of most top 100 prospect lists. I mean, think about the right-handed pitchers that are in, you know, the, the farm systems of Major League Baseball teams today. I think you have an elite of, you know, Tyler Glass now, Lucas Giolito, Alex Reyes, um, Anderson Espinosa, um, Francis Martez. But after that, I mean, Gazelman is pretty, you know, he compares pretty favorably to the next couple of guys that would still be on the board. Um, if you look at the scanning reports and numbers of guys like Jeff Hoffman on the Rockies, um, Jose De Leon on the Dodgers, Robert Stevenson on the Reds, Brent Honeywell from the from the Rays, you know, a couple guys. They're all, you know, top 20, 30 prospects in baseball. And Gazelman, you know, he compares pretty favorably to them with the stuff and the numbers, the results, everything. So realistically, Gazelman should be, you know, a, a top 20, 30 prospect in baseball. So it's hard to, you know, getting back to Zipaki, it's hard, you know, to um, outshine, you know, a top 20, 30 prospect in baseball, in my, you know, personal opinion. And uh, when when top 100 lists start getting revealed, there might be certain lists that have Robert Gazelman ranked very high. Uh, so looking at Zipaki and, igno you know, ignoring Gazelman... We've got Thomas Zapucky, who was the clear standout, and Justin Dunn, who I would say is the other clear standout. You know, the two pitchers that are at the top of most, um, if not all, Mets prospect lists. So let's take a look at the two of those guys. Um, they're a little similar. So let's look at them and see if we can, you know, suss out who is the better pitcher right now. Fastballs. Um, so Pucky throws a fastball, sits 92-95, tops out at 97, and he gets good movement thanks to his arm slot, which is kind of somewhere between a low three-quarters angle and, you know, three-quarter arm slot. Dunn also throws a fastball that sits 92-95, tops out at 97, and he gets some pretty good arm side run on it. So I would say that if you're comparing the two, they're about even uh, in, in terms of their fastballs. So now we'll look at the secondary stuff. Uh, Zabucky throws a sweeping curveball that sits about 75 to 80 miles an hour. It's about an average pitch right now. Flashes plus when he's really got it going. 
and he throws a changeup that's uh, thrown in the low 80s, and it's not a good pitch, really. It's still developing, but over the course of the summer, he really improved it, especially against right-handers, thanks to some coaching he got uh, early in the year from Ron Romanek. So this time next year, if the changeup continues improving like it did last year, the pitch could be you know fringe average, maybe even an average pitch if if it really improves, and we're bullish about that. So now we'll look at Dunn. Dunn throws a tight slider in the mid-80s that it's an average pitch now and flashes plus. He throws a fringy curveball, fringe average curveball. Uh, it sits also in the mid-80s, and it's really just a little slower and loopier than the slider. And he also has a changeup, but he really doesn't go to it much. Um, you know, there's not really that much of a differential in its speed. Um between it and his fastball, it's it's really right now still in the mid to high 80s, and it doesn't really have much movement to it, so it's you know also a developing pitch. So with their secondaries, I'm going to give Zipaki, um this edge, really, because of his changeup. Um, Dunn has an extra pitch with his curveball, but it really isn't an effective pitch. You know, the, it, it and the slider sometimes kind of bleed together to the point where you really can't even tell if his slider is just a little loopy or if he's, you know, intentionally throwing the curve. Um, Zipaki, you know, he put in work with his changeup, and even though it's still a developing pitch, um, you really, you know, it really um, got a lot better as the summer progressed. So he gets the edge, Zipaki gets the edge there. And now let's just kind of look at some miscellaneous things. Um, Zipaki had his season end prematurely due to some lower back issues. Um, that's not a good thing. That could be a pretty could be a pretty big red flag. But could is the key word. Um, being shut down early could really just be more precautionary than real. But you know we don't know, so it's something to be aware of. That could uh, have a pretty big impact on him in the future. Uh, Zipaki's a, a lot more raw than Dunn is also, even though Dunn is pretty raw as a stutter himself. Um, he has the throwing the ball part down, but he still needs to work on a lot of the stuff like working out of the stretch, pitching, you know, inside the hitters, you know, fielding his position. So, I mean, there's work. There's always work to be done. Uh, Dunn had major issues holding his, uh, velocity. I know I've mentioned this before. But, you know, I watched Dunn's fastball velocity go from a steady low to mid 90s to the next inning low 90s to the next inning high 80s and low 90s right before my eyes. You know, two starts in one in August, one in late August and the other in early September against Staten Island. So the lack of stamina might just be because, you know, he's a reliever for most of his career and the 30 innings that he threw at Brooklyn coupled with the 65 that he threw at Boston College was... They're almost double the amount that he threw uh, as a sophomore in 2015. So, you know, that could be the culprit. Or it could be that, you know, his his frame, which is, you know, he's uh, one, 6'2", 185. So, you know, it's he's built, but, you know, not, not that heavy. You know, he's kind of slim. It could be that his frame maybe can't support premium velocity for more than an inning or so. You know, I don't know. But we'll find out next season, I guess. So, overall, um, Zipaki gets the edge 
um, which is why he was ranked the third best prospect, you know, by Mason Avenue, and Dunn was ranked eighth. Uh, me personally, I ranked the Pucky fourth on my list, and Dunn seventh. So there you have it, Ryan. I hope I answered your question satisfactorily. And you know, anyone else has any other prospect questions? Please email us because it's the middle of the winter and not much is going on. So, thanks a lot, everyone. This is Steve Saipa, and I'll talk to you guys. Well, Chris, we are fresh off of uh, actually hanging out in person, getting a rare in-person hangout at the Nelson Figueroa Charity Bowling event on Monday night, where we had a in a nice time. We got to speak with Nelson and Jim Duquette and John Franco, hopefully all three of whom will appear on the podcast at some point. That'll be fun. Yeah, and, that would be nice. And uh, But we got a listener email this week. And so, as always, you can email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. And uh, Brad asks us, with the Philadelphia acquisition of Michael Saunders for a one-year signing, this almost certainly takes him out of the potential Bruce deal. I'm not too sure I see too many teams out there looking at him. My prediction is they keep him on the roster. What role do you see him on this team? What are the prob- probabilities of a release by the end of the season? How bad of a trade does this look like in even such a short-term look? All right, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's um, let's first talk about how bad does this trade look. We won't really know that until we figure out how good of a player Dolson Herrera is going to be. Right. You know, and I know that that's such a cop out answer to say, you know, that you don't really, it takes, you know, a number of years to see how bad a trade is. But that's the truth. If, if Herrera winds up being a fringy prospect who has a little bit of time with the majors, doesn't really hit, doesn't play great defense, then the trade isn't that terrible. If he's anything close to a major league regular, this is a, and Bruce, is on the roster this year and is as ineffective as he was for the most for the majority of his Mets tenure, then this is a a terrible trade for a franchise that's had a number of terrible trades. Um, but I think that, that that implies a lot of things, and I don't know if I would necessarily imply any of those things at this point. Um, I guess the big question we should we should sort of start with here, Chris, is what do you think? If Bruce is on the team as of opening day, do you see him as anything but their starting left or right fielder? Uh, no, I would say, you know, with Cespedes cemented and left, I would say he's the starting right fielder going into the season. And, you know, I know that I, I've been saying that wouldn't be the end of the world. It wouldn't doom the 2017 Mets season. You know, it's not. <clears throat> it's not ideal. It's not my preferred option. Uh, you know, Michael Conforto obviously has a lot of supporters. He he showed us what kind of hitter he could be when he first came up to the big leagues. You know, there's plenty of reasons that I, it's preferable to have Conforto playing every day. But given the construction of the roster, if they take Bruce all the way to opening day, uh, and this may be an unpopular opinion, but... I'd be inclined to have Conforto play in Vegas until Bruce did something, you know, until Bruce was either good enough that a team wanted to trade for him or 
you know, some something came up, uh, somebody got hurt, and and there was a spot to bring him up, and that's not, you know, I'm I'm. I think I've been consistent in saying that I generally root for the players when it comes to salary and that sort of thing. But if I'm, you know, looking at it from the team perspective, uh, if Bruce is around, I think Terry Collins is probably going to end up playing him a lot. And under those circumstances, I think it's probably more beneficial that Conforto at least hits and plays baseball every day. And, you know, the side benefit of that for the team is that it, you know, could prevent him from earning service time and keep him under control longer. Now, you know, that that concept is something that should be out the window, generally speaking. But if he's only going to be on the bench and start once or twice a week, you know, how much difference does it make if he's there or if Brandon Nimmo's there? I mean, I agree with you completely, and I think anybody who is going to fight that point is is not thinking about this realistically, right? Like, nobody, I don't think anybody within the organization, nor do I think anybody, not anybody, I think most diehard Mets fans would rather see Conforto to at least give him a shot before you know, giving the the reins to Bruce. But I think if you're being realistic about this, Conforto playing every day is more important than almost anything else related to Bruce. If if Conforto is going to be the long-term solution in the outfield, then you have to let him play more than three days a week. It's, It's the way it has to be. And on the Major League roster, with Granderson, Bruce, and Cespedes, he's not going to play more than two or three days a week. So I'm with you on that one. I also think that to ask Terry Collins to not play a veteran is like asking a Tiger to change its stripes. You know, it's just it's just who Collins is as a manager. So I think no matter what, he's going to get playing time. He's going to get a lot of playing time if he's around. Um you know, a couple of good things could happen. If Bruce was really in just, a, you know, a uh, a funk for his beginning of his Mets tenure, well, that means that you could get a player who is far better than we saw last year to be playing for the Mets. And that's a good thing. It, you know, a player with some power, a player who could potentially help the Mets early on in the season. You know, this is not going to be easy for the Mets to win the division. So any offensive help they can get early in the season is a really, really nice thing. So, you know, Bruce could have some residual benefit from being there. I don't think it's enough to stop trying to trade him. I think the trading him should still be the priority here. But I think we're getting to the point in the offseason where it no longer necessarily makes sense to trade Bruce for a bag of balls. Yeah, that could be the case. And, you know, going, going into one of the other specifics of the question, the probability of a release by the end of the season, I mean, I wouldn't say that's impossible. I would bet that it's unlikely. I, I would bet against that happening. Um you know, what he did in the two seasons before uh, his great first half 
that preceded the trade to the Mets was concerning. It wasn't good, you know, just from a hitting perspective. Uh, you know, if you buy that his defense is so bad that it erases even, you know, good to great power hitting, uh, as was the case in his time with Cincinnati in 2016, you know, then that's a guy who you might release. I, I'm not necessarily saying that I don't buy that. It's just that's a bold know. step to take. Yeah, I I don't think he ends up being so bad that that happens. Um, I could be wrong, but my guess is that Jay Bruce remains on a major league roster, you know, through the end of the 2017 season. Yeah, absolutely. I also think that people might be forgetting how many injuries happened during spring training. And, you know, there is a team out there who's probably going to need a left-handed bat before the end of spring training. And we might be getting past the point here where the return for Bruce is going to be exciting. But, well, I guess let's ask this question, Chris. At this point in the offseason, what is an acceptable return? Hmm. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I came into this thinking salary relief. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think that's even going to happen anymore. I mean, yeah, they're going to have to eat some of it. Yeah, I, I would gladly take eat a third or half of it and get two marginal minor leaguers. You know, we saw that the, the latest rumor on it was that the Mets were asking teams for two prospects. Now, prospect is a term that can be thrown around to mean pretty much anybody who's a minor league baseball player. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it, you're not looking at getting some organization's top, uh, top guy or two. But right. if you can get two marginal guys and you pay, you know, five or six million, uh, you get those guys, you're essentially just buying some minor league depth at that point. You know, you do that, <clears throat> hopefully reinvest whatever's left over in a relief pitcher, maybe two, you know, I, I, a few guys have come off the board. It's still amazing that there are quite uh, quite a few of major league caliber relievers that are still out there. Uh, Including one Jerry Blevins. Yep, he's still out there. My uh you know, my free agent sort of uh fit, especially if he's down to a situation where it, you know, he has to take something uh resembling uh a flyer would be Sergio Romo. He's still out there. You know, there's there's a lot of guys left out there. So I don't know that that necessarily means that they'll all be bargains, but... It's looking more likely that is Romo's a bargain, a bargain than, than earlier this yeah. offseason, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, if that's the case, and you can sign two guys uh, with whatever, you know, Bruce money... And to be clear, I think I would hope you would do that even if you don't get rid of Bruce. But eating half of Bruce's salary just to bring in another few guys who help you at different levels of the organization, I think would be very well worth it. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, anything else to say about Bruce or we, we pretty much uh, covered him? Uh no, I just I, I look forward to continuing 
uh, Bruce Avenue Audio. I was just going to make the same joke. <laughs> Bruce Boulevard, maybe? Bruce Boulevard works. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go with Bruce Boulevard. I like that. <laughs> um, all right. Well, you know, there is there is still one little bit of, of Mets news that we haven't covered uh, that is relevant to the 2017 season, which is that Wilmer Flores and the Mets did not yet reach an agreement on Flores' salary for next year. He's the only player since 2008 with Oliver Perez to go to arbitration with the Mets. Uh, Chris, you have the numbers memorized because, of course, you do. What are the uh, what are the numbers <laughs> on, on both sides here for the contract? So Flores submitted $2.2 million and the Mets submitted $1.8 million in the grand scheme of things in, in the world of Major League Baseball in 2017. That's nothing yeah but it's the but, Mets so it's 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 a little bit more than nothing yeah no no it, it it is but it's just it's not a big deal you know and I, I didn't see anybody who really read into it that it was um right this isn't going to be the kind of arbitration that ends with the team and the player hating each other no no but it it did seem it's a little odd. Like, yeah, you guys couldn't you couldn't just meet it too. <laughs> Especially as I would think that the team would recognize how um, how valuable Flores is as a uh, as sort of an avatar for this team. You know, his his heroics at the end of the uh, of the twenty fifteen season are going to make him a member of Mets lore forever. This is a player that not only has value on the field, but has a substantial amount of value off the field. For, you know, $400,000, it seems like that's something that the that the average Major League team should be able to eat with no questions asked. Right. And I, I get that they, you know, they always try to keep the raises minimal so that the next one, you know, it... it there's a sort of cumulative effect right. of each one. So I understand that, but you know, it's just, it like, whatever he's one more Flores, you know, he's not going to play enough to rack up numbers that are going to get a major. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Look, if Flores, you know, major, is major due, raises in this... if Flores is do a giant raise next year, because he had the most monster season possible, that's a great problem to have. Right, and I don't think the difference between any of the numbers, or those two numbers now at this point, because, uh, you know, the arbitrator picks one of the two. There's right. not, you know, there's not a made-up compromise or anything in between. Somebody wins, somebody loses. And I'm not sure of the percentage of times the teams win or lose. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it probably has a lot to do with how much of a gap there is and if somebody's being outlandish on one side or the other in this case neither side is i'm guessing it's a 50 50 shot you know so it's a 50 percent chance of saving less than one player who makes the league minimum right yeah it's not like this is what's going to prevent the mets from going out and getting jerry blevins no i i, I certainly hope not <laughs> yeah jerry we've got a deal ready oh we just got to win this case versus wilmer flores I mean, to be fair, weirder Mets things have happened than that. 
True. But yeah, no, I think I think we are uh I think we're past that. And I, I I I'll say that the Cespit is signing alone should should at least give them the benefit of the doubt on uh you know, how they're approaching Jerry Levins. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right, that brings us to uh, a little bit of, uh, I don't know if you call it sad news. It certainly isn't happy news, but uh, former Met pitcher uh, Jeremy Hefner has announced his retirement. Now, Jeremy Hefner has a very special place in my heart. Um, Jeremy Hefner was, what, what was the year he had that halfway decent season? Is it 2013? Uh, was it 13 or 14? I Baseball can't. reference will uh, will tell us. Thir- uh, uh, no, yeah, thirteen was was halfway decent. Okay, he was, he was twelve and thirteen. He was in majors, and yeah, twenty thirteen, one hundred thirty and two thirds innings, four point three four ERA, which isn't great, but uh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, yeah, he became yeah, he became to me the avatar of my broken Mets fandom, as I remember. Like, you know, putting together serious thought into my AOP with ways to keep Hefner on the team. (laughs) You know, (laughs) because at that point, you know, being a Mets fan was just a it was just a slog in a lot of ways. And he seemed at the time like maybe there'd be something there. Looking back on it now, there was never he was never going to be the savior of of anything. And that's not a knock on Jerry Blevins. Jerry Blevins is four hundred percent more of an athlete than I will ever be. No, Jeremy, if... Jeremy Hefner. I'm sorry, Jeremy, <laughs> Jeremy, Jeremy Hefner. My apologies. No, no, no. I I almost said it wrong in in uh, in in correcting. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, they, they really do blend together. They really do. But Hefner is, you know, he's he's five times, ten times the athlete I am. Even if he never gets off his couch again, you know. Um, but he he was sort of uh, this this character right before the Mets got good again where there were there was all this hope in Harvey and Syndergaard and Wheeler and uh, it was we knew we had to kind of suffer through guys like Hefner for another year or two to get ready for it to be really good but I, I me personally I think a lot of Mets fans weren't content to just write off those teams. We were still rooting hard. We were still wanting the team to to find those hidden gems, those diamonds in the rough, however you want to put it. And so I'll always have a bit of a positive place in my heart for Hefner, even though, you know, he certainly is is not my favorite Met, nor would he be in the top, you know, 100 most consequential Mets of the past decade. Right, no, but there's uh, and he, I think I'm about to tweet it out as we record, uh, but you can go back and I think one of the best Mets gifts that's ever been out there was <laughs> the new one was being uh, when he was being interviewed by Kevin Burkhart in the dugout. Yeah, <clears throat> and Kirk Newenheis, you know, came up out of nowhere and like everybody in the shop behind them was participating. You know, I think, uh, Latroy Hawkins looked like he was swimming. <laughs> Several other guys on the team were doing, you know, just funny things. But new and heist comes up with like his eyes wide open, like big bug eyed look, uh, out of nowhere, right in the middle of the shot. 
and uh, and Hefner keeps his composure, and so does Kevin Burkhardt for that matter. Yeah, but it, it just made for this really great visual, you know, uh, a, a great SNY moment uh, that I, you know, I remember some of the things he did on the mound, uh, but that that's going to be my lasting memory, and that that's not an insult because it was amazing. Yeah. Uh, I'd be happy to contribute anything in my life as memorable as, as that as that uh, image. <laughs> so, uh, fare thee well, Jeremy Hefner. I'm sorry I, I fucked up your name before. And uh, <laughs> uh, that brings us to uh, to our penultimate topic of the night. The Mets this week announced the designs for their Free Shirt Friday events. Uh, there are uh, two or three... Free Shirt Fridays each month, with uh, June getting three, the rest of the month's getting two. One of the selections this year is a, a long-sleeve shirt. And uh, we get shirts dedicated to, let's see if I can do all these, Reyes, Syndergaard, uh, Walker and Cabrera together, DeGrom, Cespedes. Is that it? Is there anybody else that gets their own solo shirt, or are those all of them? Uh, let's Let's take a look. You know... I'm just saying, if I were promoting my T-shirts, I'd have the images be a little bit bigger than a th- <laughs> like a thumbnail. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, but yeah, player specific. I think that's everybody. And then you get a couple. Uh, there's a nice shirt that says the the, the, the opening weekend shirt says there's no place like. And then there's a home plate with the Mets logo on it. Um, there's a tie dye Mets shirt, which probably will be tied in somewhere to the Dead and Company show happening at City Field. Yeah. And, there's, and there's a couple of just, you know, generic Mets designs. Although I have to say some of those generic designs, specifically the August 18th one and the July 21st one, seem pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, – I think of the whole bunch, the May 5th Syndergaard is the one that stands out to me. Yeah. Uh, that might just be my, you know uh, – it might be how I think of Syndergaard generally. <laughs> no, I agree, but, but it has a nice thunderbolt to it. It's uh, yeah, that's, that's the nicest shirt of the bunch for sure. Yeah, but you know, as far as promos go, you know, not to sound like we're uh, selling tickets for the Mets here, but as far as promos go, they do a pretty decent job with this, and I think it's a it's a pretty good batch of shirts. Yeah, I mentioned before. My that... one, uh, my one thing with. Oh no, go ahead. No, you you go first. Okay, so my one thing with it is a is a request similar to the one that Jerry gave to George. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying have all the sizes, but every shirt's an extra large. That they give out, so that uh, you know, it, it falls into the one size fits most. Right. In the sense that. It could be either big or really big on a lot of people yeah. uh, and properly fit a lot of people, but maybe just like two options, <laughs> you know, yeah. like go to, go to the left if you want, you know, and, size um, A right, and to right. the right for, for B, just, you know, just some distinction, uh, I think. And then in the end, if people get shirts that don't fit them, whatever, but just two different sizes, that's all. I understand that request. As an extra large, I don't care. 
screw y'all. Yeah, yeah no. But, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but what I was going to say is I also like the DeGrom shirt, which has him. It just has like a hand gripping a baseball. And I can't really see what's behind the image. I think it's his hair. Oh, yeah, that's his hair. Uh, and, and that is actually on my birthday. So I, I will probably be at that game. So I will gladly collect at that game anyone's ill-fitting shirts they don't want. Yes. <laughs> I will just I will adorn my wardrobe with as many DeGrom shirts as I can. And, uh, yeah, because why not, right? Yeah, and I'm not sure how they pull this off next year, but they've done the DeGrom hair hat. Now there's a DeGrom hair shirt. Um, <laughs> there somehow has to be a pair of DeGrom hair pants. <laughs> I don't. Gracious. I have no idea how that works, but you know, you got to complete the uh, yeah the, the the Degrom hair outfit. <laughs> Maybe you just make it like the pinstripe Mets pants with instead of like the uh, '86 Mets racing stripe, just hair stripes. Yeah, yeah. just just Degrom. <laughs> you know, Degrom hair, hair pants. Not just for serial killers anymore. <laughs> Oh, boy. All right. Well, the last item on our agenda tonight is the big news of the week in baseball, which is that the uh, Baseball Hall of Fame has a few new members. We got Jeff Bagwell, Tim Raines, and Pudge Rodriguez as the uh, the newest members of the Hall of Fame. What are your initial thoughts on the class of 2017, Chris? Uh, well, I'm thrilled. So Jeff Bagwell was always my favorite non-Met. Uh, and, you know, for for like a little bit of a backstory there, uh, the AA team in New Britain, Connecticut, uh, well, they've theoretically moved to Hartford, although they haven't played a game there yet, <laughs> uh, is the... And, and I love this name, but I would say infamous yard goats. Yep. It's an accurate phrase. Uh, before they were the yard goats, they were the New Britain Rockets, uh, Twins affiliate. But before that, they were the New Britain Red Sox, uh, the AA affiliate of, obviously, the Boston Red Sox. So that was where I saw a lot of games growing up in Connecticut. And we went, you know, Bagwell was there. I, I, I was six years old at the time um so back you know he's there in 1990 uh, he was also a connecticut kid uh, he did he grew up went to high school and went to college all within the state and i remember we were sitting there and, and new britain had a new stadium built in the mid 90s that was you know really nice big upgrade from what where they used to play uh at a park called beehive field so beehive was it, it wasn't a dump or anything. It just more resembled like uh, maybe an American Legion style okay. place to see a game. You know, it, it more GA benches style seating than your normal minor league park would have now. Uh, it still exists, but that's where I first saw Jeff Bagwell. So I'm six. He was 22 uh, looking at it now. And I remember there was a, you know, there was a game that we're sitting there and uh, my dad's chatting with a guy and it turns out that it's Bagwell's dad. Oh, wow. You know, and they're, they're just chatting throughout the game and whatever. But I remember Bagwell's dad saying at the time that they were thrilled and, you know, just to be able to watch him play pro ball. And, you know, even if this is as far as he gets, it's great and whatever, you know, things along those lines. Uh, 
you know, so he was he was a New Britain guy uh, to me who, you know, I went and saw. I'm sure I got his autograph back then. I mean, I was I was six. So, you know, I was still very much in autograph mode. And, you know, I remember him playing. He played third base when he was there, too. Uh, the Astros moved him over to first after they got him in the trade. But, you know, to, to go from that. So, you know, there was that, that very direct connection of, this guy, and then he goes on to have uh, uh, now officially, even though I think it and Ted Berg has made this point a few times, uh, it should have been sooner, but now I, we can officially say he wanted to have a Hall of Fame career. So, you know that that to me, uh, he, I had you know I had an Astros hat, an Astros bobblehead, certainly had I think one. There, there were a lot of jersey styles in like the late '90s that were pretty terrible. You don't say. <laughs> so I think it was like a blue with like a white shoulder Astros Bagwell. I jersey. remember those, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that was the look, but you know that that was my guy, uh, and you know I, I always appreciated getting to observe his career as you know even in the way that i did uh and you know it's crazy he wasn't that old when he i mean that young sorry when he retired but he probably still had something left in the tank if his shoulder didn't totally just <laughs> fall stop. off essentially yeah 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 you know you third uh 2004 he's 36 uh 27 home runs you know uh hit pretty well overall you know, it's uh, not everybody does that into their mid, you know, mid thirties. So, I think that sort of reflects how good he was. That wasn't him at the top of his game, but he was still a good player. And yeah, that so that that's my first reaction. You got my Bagwell backstory now. So, that's a pretty nice story. Yeah, I'm very happy he's in, and I'm I'm happy for. Tim Raines finally getting into. He had a much longer wait. And uh, speaking of, you know, we mentioned earlier potential podcast guests. Uh, we certainly intend to have Jonah carry on at some point. So I, if he should be on a victory tour. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Sometime soon. So if he's, uh, you know, if we can work it out, I'd love to have him on to to delve into that. But uh, and I, you know, Pudge Rodriguez deserves a mention as well. What about you uh, in terms of the guys who made it or didn't make it? What was your first? Uh... Well, I mean, for the guys who didn't make it. So when I when I was a kid, I was um, some little backstory here for me. Uh, my dad is a uh, old school New York Giants fan. So he went to the polo grounds with his dad to watch the Giants play. So my dad is a San Francisco Giants fan above all else. And because he grew up with the team across the country for most of his life, he's always said it's important to have uh, an East Coast team and a West Coast team. And specifically, if you can do it from different leagues, that's the way to go. So growing up, I was a Mets fan first and foremost, but I was also a Mariners fan. And I loved Ken Griffey Jr. and, you know, Griffey's probably my favorite non-Met of all time, but right below him is Edgar Martinez. So I was really hoping that Edgar would make a bigger jump this year, but he he made a, I think it was a five or six point jump than he did last year. And it looks like Edgar Martinez is going to be in the Hall of Fame the next couple of years. And that's, yeah, that's a wonderful I, thing. Oh yeah, it is. You know, and I'm, I'm very much an anti-DH guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's not his fault. 
No, that's exactly. You finish each other's sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, that you know, it, exactly that. It's not his fault the position existed and that he was amazing at it. <laughs> right, he, he, just great at it. You know, I've seen some people point out just that the field gets a little crowded. Uh, it continues to get crowded because there's this backlog that now, you know, the whispers guys, I, I would call right. them. Piazza, Bagwell, they're in, uh, you know, Bonds and Clemens are uh, probably getting in. progress. Yeah, they. so you're going to have some names of guys who are going to come off the ballot because they're in the Hall of Fame. So I haven't specifically looked yet at the next class. Um, this isn't the Jeter year, is it? Isn't there one more year before the Jeter year? Yeah, I, I think so. Right? I think. Or are we just old? I don't know. He might just be old. Um, I well, did tweet as soon as I, it was official. The, be, the whole Bagwell thing made me feel a little bit old. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I was going to say was that, you know, um, Edgar Martinez is at the point now where almost no player has not gotten in after having that kind of support at this point in his time on the ballot. Right. So that, that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, I'm really happy for Tim Raines. To me, Tim Raines is, uh, and this is going to, insult probably part of our audience so i'm sorry tim reigns is the smart person's jack morris on the ballot where like there was this very loud minority that was saying that jack morris really deserved to be in the hall of fame but everybody else kind of ignored them and for a long time tim reigns was the opposite all these really smart people were saying no you have to look at tim reigns career he he deserves the hall of fame and he was just being summarily ignored and Jack Morris did not make it into the Hall of Fame. He fell off the ballot in his last year of contention, and that didn't happen for Tim Raines. So in some ways, they're interesting parallels of each other. Um, and I'm really glad that Tim Raines made the Hall of Fame because him making the Hall of Fame is a sign that the voting populace is starting to look past counting stats. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is uh... – Absolutely. That, you know, that, that's a, it's a good thing. And, you know, it, I'm not generally speaking, and I'm not saying you, that the bar is lowered for Reigns because it absolutely wasn't, mm-hmm. but generally speaking, I would probably go a little more towards the lenient side. If it were up to me, yeah, I, I get that. I, you I'm the same. To, I'm the same. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I get that you want it to be a distinction, but, you know, there's a point that I'm okay with a guy who might be, you know, in the bottom third of Hall of Famers, existing Hall of Famers. You know, I don't think everybody who comes along necessarily has to be, uh, you know, inner circle. Yeah, I agree so. with that. And I think there's just something... Like, all right, so as Mets fans, we've only seen two players go in with a Mets cap. And both of them, I think, I mean, Piazza had the steroid whispers, but if you take that aside, I don't think anybody's arguing that Seaver and Piazza don't belong in the Hall of Fame. But I remember as a kid who went to the Hall of Fame for the first time, there wasn't a Met in the Hall of Fame. There wasn't a guy wearing a Mets cap in the Hall of Fame. And I think that that's got to be a bummer if you're a fan of the Tampa Bay Rays or you're a fan of uh, what other teams don't don't have. I know uh, 
Griffey was the first Mariner to go in. But, you know, is there a guy in in the Blue Jays cap? Uh, oh, man. There's got to be, right? I don't know. I think I don't think Molitor went in as a Blue Jay. I don't think Winfield went in as a Blue Jay. Ricky Henderson didn't go in as a Blue Jay. Hmm. Let's see. But, but my, my point being here, I think that there is something special about a kid going to the Hall of Fame and seeing his team's cap up there. Now, that's not saying that you should let in just anybody to make that happen. But I think that, like you were saying, if there's a guy who is who is maybe not a slam dunk first ballot guy, I have no problem with that guy getting in on a seventh or eighth ballot. I, yeah. I, I also think it, I think the baseball is a wide game. It's not a narrow game. There's lots of different parts of the game that could be honored in in better ways than have been honored thus far. So I think having a DH in there, even though, like you, I'm not a DH guy, I think you know, the DH has been in existence for long enough now, it's kind of absurd that there's not one DH in there. One, one, one guy who was, you know, predominantly a DH in there. And it's a little bit silly. So I, I, I'm for a slightly bigger haul, too. Yeah. Uh, is there a Blue Jay to look it up? Uh, of the players who I, – I don't know if any of them have a Blue Jays hat. Uh-huh. Roberto Alomar was Oh, there he for might. A few years. That's the one guy who I think maybe. Um, let's see. There's got to be – this is 2017. Somebody must have posted a photo, <laughs> including the Hall of Fame itself. Right, you know, or Alomar himself. Yes, he has a Blue Jays hat on. Okay, so he's the one, I think. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, that's um, that's a good a good point. My my uh, former Met reaction, you know, he's still on the ballot, but Billy Wagner was arguably better than Trevor Hoffman, even if you don't agree with that. I think you might agree that he was about as good as Trevor Hoffman, and Hoffman just barely missed it. And Hoffman Wagner, will be in next year more than likely. Right, yeah. And uh, Wagner's, at, it was at about, what, 10%? Yeah. Um, it's, the, it's the counting stats. It is. And the funny thing, I, I mean, I know saves are the big one, but it, it's, you know... It's not like Hoffman pitched that much more than Wagner. Um, and Wagner went out strong. I know Hoffman did too, but I don't know. It, it just It's weird that there's such a big disparity there. Uh, Hoffman, for whatever reason, just it has always been much more respected than the average closer. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons why. I think he was an articulate guy. I think he had... Amazing entrance music. I think he played for a team that he was often the highlight of. You know, there are all those reasons why. You know, Billy Wagner could be a bit gruff with the press. Right. Well, you know, he had some lines that maybe weren't well received in that room, but uh, were classic lines as Uh far as we were concerned. (laughs) Are you you talking about the lasting smillage uh, note? Uh, Was that the same as Shocker? (laughs) <laughs> no, I don't think so. When he, when he, you know, effing shocker. 
Yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, he, he the uh, it was know your role, Rook. Was not was not know your. Flight. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Okay, yeah, yeah th- those were separate things. Mm-hmm. But you uh, you mentioned something that I uh, almost forgot to bring up myself. But the entrance music, uh, and this is where it all ties together. Uh, one one of my favorite anecdotes from any closer music story I've ever heard uh, was that. Wagner was using uh, some lame country song, I think. Shocking. I, <laughs> That's a fucking shocker right there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> so it's some lame country song to come in, as far as I remember. But I definitely remember that the story was that Wagner, uh, you know, he's, he's doing that. And, and Bag- Jeff Bagwell's like, you know, their teammates in Houston at the time. And Bagwell says, that, what are you doing? That's not, that's not closer music. So Bagwell specifically recommended Enter Sandman uh, because of, you know, the, the, the lyrics, especially the chorus, are fitting. The, the closer comes in at the end of the game, tries to, you know, turn, put the lights out on the other team. Right, right. You know, that, that sort of thing. So Bagwell is into it and, and, and gives him that suggestion and he takes it and runs with it. And then, of course, you know, he gets to the Mets and it's a story because, you know, Mariano Rivera does the same thing. Uh and if I recall, Rivera's was sort of like they crowd tested a few different metal songs at Yankee Stadium, and the one that got the best reaction was the one that they stuck with for him forever. Um, if there's a Yankees fan out there who, who, you know, can tell me that's like uh, a legend or a myth, please email the podcast and and do so. But I I believe that was the backstory of each. Uh, you know, so that's not just me trying to defend a Met and right, that right. rivalry. It's Assuming the Bagwell story, I think, is totally legit. And if that was the way they got it there with Rivera, um, you know, one of those ways was a little more natural than the other, I would yeah. say. I, um, I'm i conflicted personally on the representation of relief pitching in the Hall of Fame. Because, again, it's not necessarily the fault of the player that the manager chose to use him in the way that he was used. But right. I think that the one out, sorry, the one inning relief pitcher is, you know, infinitely less valuable than a starting pitcher or a uh or a position player. Oh yeah, no that that's certainly true. And you know, in most cases we don't get uh we don't get sort of the stark contrast that we've gotten with, say, Wade Davis or Andrew Miller. Right. You know, most guys end up being a reliever by the time they get to the majors, or if they switch roles, a lot of times it happens very early, and then that's that. Uh, you know, and this isn't a knock on Miller and Davis. As relievers, they're among the best uh, of their era, and, you know, their na- their numbers in, in relief would compare favorably to a lot of relievers in the history of the game. But because of the way their careers developed, we know that they, you know, they just didn't work as starters, right? And turned into these dominant relievers, you know. And Mariano Rivera is sort of a uh, a great example of, I guess, the point I'm trying to make here was that he came up as a starter. Uh, I think I want to see how many starts it was. I think it was six, 
Let's see if my memory is as good as it was from Wilmer Flores. Uh, <laughs> Arbitration numbers. And to be clear, and we were talking about this at the uh, Nelson Figueroa event the other night, I'm terrible at trivia but when it comes <laughs> to like pulling something out of my own memory. Uh, oh, no, it wasn't six. He made ten. He made ten okay, starts okay. in 1995. Uh, we're on like a personal baseball history tour with me here. Yeah. I saw one of those. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Um, didn't go so well. Uh, generally, I don't remember specifically how his start went that day. But, you know, he. <laughs> it, it, it's crazy to look at this. In his first year in the majors, he had a 5.51 ERA. Man. Uh, the rest of his career, he had a 2.03. So it's crazy for as long as he played and as well as he pitched that that first, you know, his career is 2.21. And, you know, there there's almost two uh, tenths of a difference in that just from that first season wow. where the starts didn't go well. So, you know. You take his numbers as a, as a reliever, and they're uh, they're pretty insane. But but that's sort of the point. Like we don't get that contrast with a lot of guys, so you you just see what they are as a reliever, right? But yeah, I think that the Hall of Fame is infinitely interesting, and it's a wonderful thing to debate. And I think if you look at the results today, while I would rather see, you know, four or five guys get in every year. Just because, again, I'm a bit of a bigger hall guy. I think you have to look at today and think the system worked, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, the dream scenario for me all along was that there would be a class that was just Piazza Bagwell because, it, you know, it, it kind of lined up that it, would, it could work out that way if the voters had just, you know. And see – Piazza Griffey are my two favorite players of all time, and nice. I had to work last weekend, last year at that weekend. Is <laughs> it the one weekend all summer I could not not be around? Yeah, well, so. I yeah, no, I I couldn't make it up. Uh, weddings last year and this year have will mean I won't be in Cooperstown, but I will be hungover and tuning <laughs> in to you know to see what's going on. Uh, you know, certainly saw the Piazza speech that day, and I, you know, I would like to see the Bagwell one in uh, much in the same way. Yeah, the reason I said that to me this definitely worked is that you get the best of all three worlds here. You got Pudge in on the first try. You got a first ballot guy who nobody would have argued with getting on there. You also get the guy who the the 15 years worked for him, right? It was a guy who built up support and who really showed people that, you no, know, this career was worth looking into and, you know, good for him. And you also had the guy in Bagwell that deserved to be there but had, you know, probably unnecessary steroid speculation and that eventually lost out to logic. So to me, those are like the three things you want out of a Hall of Fame Induction. You want the surefire guys to get in. You want the guys whose careers were better than you remembered them and needed some reevaluation. And you want some of the bullshit to fall by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think Rodriguez is uh, 
you know, a really good example of that just with Piazza being in. You know, he, he probably doesn't get in right away if Piazza wasn't in already. Yeah, you're right. I just read today something interesting about Rodriguez. Apparently, he found um, squatting to be the most comfortable natural position he had. So, like, when he was at home not doing anything, he would just be squatting. Like, someone said they met him at the mall one time, and then he was squatting outside of the store his wife was shopping in. Because that was just, like, how he was comfortably hanging out. Yeah, Which says so uh, much about him. It, it does, you know. I like that. Yeah. So congratulations, folks. And um, hopefully by the time we speak next week, there is a resolution to the Bruce situation, though I doubt it. And But there might actually be a resolution to the Flores situation. That hearing is relatively soon, isn't it? Uh, should have done my homework on that. You didn't memorize so. that too, McShane, huh? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I think so. Uh, the, it's not – I mean, it certainly happens before spring training workouts start. And, right, yeah. You know, we know that's not even that far away at this point. So, yeah, it it's probably soon. Oh, should we should we announce the thing? Uh, yes. You want to do the honors? Uh, I'll let you do the honors. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? No idea. <laughs> the, uh, the ARG? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That thing. Yes. <laughs> so, so uh, February 11th at a, at a date, at, sorry, at a time and location to be determined, we're going to do our Amazing Avenue regional gathering here the arg as it's known uh in conjunction maybe with some podcast recording we don't really know that part of it yet but uh someplace in manhattan we'll be having a meetup with uh amazing avenue staffers as well as readers of the site listeners of the podcast so y'all should come out to that yeah and we know uh we're aiming for convenience here you know midtown isn't particularly uh cool in terms of bars and whatnot and you know there are plenty of places that are totally decent but i live in the sticks man manhattan's cool to me midtown's cool to me <laughs> it's uh it is it absolutely serves a purpose uh <laughs> so somewhere between or near grand central and or Penn uh is the goal so you know uh keep an eye out on the site um steve Saipa usually uh, we may be plugging this twice. I, you know, having not heard his segment yet, we that's might be true. plugging this twice in the same episode, but that's okay. Uh, but he usually handles the official uh, putting together of it. But it, it's been a good time. Uh, I've been at the past few years, missed one with an awful cold. But, uh, you know, assuming I avoid that getting sick in February thing, uh, I'm very much looking forward to it. Yeah, hopefully we'll see you guys there, and we'll definitely catch you next week. Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, please email the show, podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We love to get your emails. Um, 
you know, they don't have to be specifically Mets related. If you wanted to ask us about something else, we'd be happy to answer those every now and then. But, you know, this time of year, there's not that much to talk about. Emails do help the show stay fresh. So send us an email or two. Uh, you can also, of course, go to AmazingAvenue.com to check out all sorts of Mets content, including uh, an article and some pictures about the aforementioned Nelson Figueroa charity bowling event from the other night. We're going to have an article up tomorrow about that very event. Um, you can, of course, find Amazing Avenue also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, in Stitcher, or download it directly from blogtalkradio.com. And finally, you can follow the three contributors for this week's show on Twitter. I am at Brian it's an app. Chris is at Chris McShane, and Steve is at Steve Saipa. So we'll hope to see you at the ARG in a few weeks, and uh, until then, let's go Mets!